Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So right now, the media landscape is in the middle of some truly brutal layoffs, and some brilliant writers have lost their jobs, including a pitchfork, which is one of the most influential music review sites around. Today on the podcast, you're going to hear what we lose when we lose good criticism. Let's go. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Okay, let's kick things off with this. That is Casey Accidental from Broken Social Scene. It is off their 2003 album, You Forgot It in People. That album was a huge breakthrough moment for Broken Social Scene. And how does a breakthrough happen? Well, at the time, they were reviewed really well by Pitchfork, the online music publication, and then nothing was the same after that for them. Pitchfork's reviews can make or break a band, and over the decades, it's kind of established itself as the place, the place where big music fans can read criticism or discover new bands or music. But last week, Pitchfork's parent company, Condé Nast, laid off a sizable chunk of its staff. It also announced plans to fold Pitchfork into GQ, the men's magazine. We are going to spend some time responding to these changes and also taking a moment to look back at the legacy of Pitchfork up until now. Commotion regulars Nico Stratus and Cadence Weapon are here. I give them both five stars out of five. I give them five mics. They're in the building. And also Jill Mapes. She was an editor at Pitchfork for eight years before being laid off with other staffers last week. Jill's work, always a 10.0. Jill, Nico, Roly, welcome to the show. How's it going, everybody? Hi, 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 hi. Yo, what's good? Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. Listen, Jill, I'm going to start with you. I know this is a tough moment for you and your colleagues. We, I want to spend some some time here and sort of get an idea of what it's like. So can you just tell us what this last week has been like for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, So a week ago, not even at this time, uh, everyone at Pitchfork thought everything was fine. Everyone had their jobs. Um about 15 minutes before an all hands meeting with Anna Wintour where she did not take off her sunglasses. They Oof. sent this invite. Our boss didn't know anything about it. They get on the call. The call lasts like four minutes and it's very vague about being incorporated into GQ. Doesn't explicitly say people are going to be laid off. Um, but then immediately sends a note to the company. Basically if people got an HR email, they were out and if they got a GQ email, they were in and people just waited to hear. And then we waited for hours to be called in to have these meetings with people we've never met. Mm. So all of this went down Wednesday and then immediately the out, up out the, uh, out, excuse me. I'm like, uh, the outroar, the, uh, all of it online was very like 
more than I think people even expected. So the, oh, the online reaction of, to the yeah, yeah. So it's kind of been like a wake uh, for Pitchfork in a way since mm. then. Um, I'm a union member, and we were one of the first unions in the building at Condé Nast to start. Um, and a lot of us went yesterday to show solidarity with the larger Condé Nast union, Condé United, which is in the middle of bargaining their first contract. Yeah. As such, they cannot. Um, they have to deal with these layoffs at the whole company uh, as a bargaining unit. And right. the company doesn't want to do that. So they had a full strike yesterday, which is extremely, it's, it's very extreme uh, in a union. You really only do it at worst case scenario. And these are so like massive that, publications, right? Like Vanity Fair, you know, yeah, GQ, Vogue, Vogue, everything that's under the Condé Nast. Umbrella. Everything except Pitchfork, Ars Technica and New Yorker, because we have existing contracts and per those you cannot, yeah, walk off. But many people went in support, like me and my colleagues who aren't, we have no stake in this, but just want to see the right thing. Yeah. People at Pitchfork that uh, did a lunch off, they walked off for the lunch uh, during lunch and, uh, you know, were supporting. So um, that's kind of what's been going on with this whole thing. Sure. It feels like it's been brewing for months because Condé announced they wanted to lay off 5% of their entire workforce last year. So. Uh, Jill, we mentioned that Pitchfork is going to be subsumed under the GQ brand. Um, my instinct is to ask you what you think that's going to look like. But actually, let me ask you, let me ask it like this. Uh, I want to read a bit of a tweet that you posted after the news of Pitchfork broke. You said, quote, after nearly eight years, mass layoffs got me. Glad we could spend the time trying to make make it, meaning Pitchfork, a less dudish place just for GQ to end up at the helm. Can you just elaborate a little bit of what, what you're getting at there? Sure. Uh, so I think that for a lot of the uh, women and folks of color and queer people at the publication, it's a it's a personal project to want to help the thing change and grow. And obviously, public perception of Pitchfork is like, it was good at this time. It sucks now. It hasn't been good since this era. Like, whatever. No one can seem to agree when we were good or bad. And yeah. I know that, like, we've just been trying to make it less of a, like, white indie rock space dude space mm -hmm. um i mean the entire time i've been there and it started before me so this is not just like this editorship this is like the past decade of of folks internally trying to change things so um yeah i'm a little bit as far as what's to come with gq at the helm this work is incredibly difficult like you're steering a massive ship and I don't think they even know that this ship is massive and what it entails. And the fact that like this group of people would argue about whether we should cover pop stars. We would argue about if we should cover people with abuse allegations. Like this is a group of people that made these decisions. This isn't yeah. like two people. So I think for them, they have um, a tall order and that they don't understand the thing that they bought. Condé Nast full straight up doesn't understand the thing they bought. They've doubled down on the thing they said when they bought it, which is that they were interested in a passionate male millennial audience. <laughs> that was a very depressing quote that lots of people were mad at. And now more than eight years later, they've shown that that's all they think of it as. Um, mm. I heard from staffers that the plans, the very vague plans from GQ leadership that have been announced involve making it sexy and commercially viable. And that they were not worried about DEI because that's what they do. 
a bunch of white guys saying, don't worry about these things, telling, I, I just, I get very angry because I just imagine like them trying to do half naked photo shoots and things, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, I, yeah. What I what I liked about your answer, Jill, is that as you were describing it, Roly was burying his face in his hands, <laughs> and Nico, Nico was shaking her head, um, yes. and, it's, and it's because there, there is this sort of fundamental uh, misunderstanding of what these media companies do when they buy a website like Pitchfork, and they think, oh, we're just like extending our brand to the space, when in reality, like you're you're absorbing a culture, and maybe you're not ready for everything that culture you know entails. And Jill, I think you you misspoke when you said outroar, but I like it because it's sort of sorry combined no but i liked it because it combines this idea of like uproar and outpouring of support and like i know I'm, i was trying to like i was like pick one trying to, doing? Try, try to cap, but like but that that's sort of like that's what the energy felt like so nico maybe you could talk a little bit about that uproar that idea the range of emotions and reactions online um when he was announced that pitchfork is going to be going under gq and all of these brilliant writers for pitchfork were laid off what what stood out for you in terms of the online reaction I mean, I really like calling it an outroar. This is my new favorite portmanteau. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking this with me. I'm saying it everywhere. I'm writing it Hell in my yes. journal. Brilliant. Um, it was an interesting, like, it was the first. It was the first moment in a while on Twitter where I felt like John Wick saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm back." Like all of a sudden, <laughs> it, like, it kind of had this like old energy of like, right, we're here and we're all mad about something, and all of us are kind of mad for different reasons in this kind of beautiful, messy way. Uh, and there was this sort of mixed reaction, right, of like writers and people that have experiences there that are talking about this experience, this exact thing of like, we try to change the culture at Pitchfork, and actually, this is a this is a process that's been going on for a long time. You know, Jessica Hopper was posting a bunch of old stuff that she had done, uh, mostly on Instagram, but in other places too. And like, and people that worked hard to change this culture of what we thought of Pitchfork. Yeah. And also watching people dismiss it out of hand by saying, well, you know, they changed when Condé bought them or whatever, when it's like, or they looked at the scores, you know, like we saw, look, we saw indie rock dudes post and delete tweets about like mm -hmm. their frustration with Pitchfork and with Condé and with all these things. And like, you're giving these bad, a lot of like bad faith surface level readings of of a thing that they're complaining is doing bad faith surface level readings was really interesting to watch. <laughs> it was this really interesting Ouroboros of just like bad faith all the way around. And, but like people really lamenting, like, look, we tried to change the culture within one of the most venerated popular pieces of what was once independent music criticism yeah. that we think of when we think of mu music criticism. When you think about music critics, you think about Pitchfork now, right? Like that is the place. Yeah. Well, Rolly, you you just did a piece about this for Hazlitt, but also one of your earliest breaks as a music critic was for Pitchfork. What was your reaction when you saw the news last week? Okay, Pitchfork is going to GQ. Rolly, how are you reacting? Well, you know, my first thought was, you know, what is the crossover between uh, GQ and Pitchfork's audience here? Uh, for me, GQ is the magazine that tells you, uh, oh, you need to buy a $75,000 watch. <laughs> um, I don't really feel like there's much crossover with Pitchfork audience for that. Um, mm. But generally, I was just totally shocked. You know, I felt like Pitchfork was too big to fail. You know, just from my understanding, it's just the definitive source of music news and reviews out there i mean i feel like back in the day getting reviewed by pitchfork you know you saw what it did for arcade fire broken social scene rhymes like all these canadian artists who we couldn't get to that level without um the outside intervention of somebody like pitchfork yeah so now it's being restructured we don't know what it's going to be like i just worry about canadian artists if we could ever get that level of coverage ever again 
Okay, so I want to get to why Pitchfork mattered so much because I think we are describing a place that if you follow music closely, um, then you know that this is one of the central places that you check. You know, every week when new music comes out, we sort of wait for the anticipation of the Pitchfork review. Um, but I want to take you guys back to 1996 with this. Tip City, The Amps, it's off Pacer, their one and only full-length release. You got the one and only Kim Deal as a front woman. Pacer was also the first album to be reviewed and published in 1996 um, on what we now call Pitchfork. The site was a brainchild of Ryan Schreiber, who was fresh out of high school at the time. Jill, maybe get a little bit romantic in this moment, if you will. At, at, its, at its best, what made Pitchfork, what made a Pitchfork review special to so many music fans, would you say? Well, I think that some of the changing approaches and attitudes of the site that we were kind of hinting at, you can see in different eras of what people liked about it. Like there's the very famous like jet review that's just a gif of a monkey pissing into its own mouth. People, <laughs> yeah, people love that. But then also people love things like um, the Kid A review in the year 2000 that's a perfect 10. And it starts with, I had never seen a shooting star before. And yes. it's like deeply romantic i think even when people thought these people were jackasses or snobs or whatever like the passion that you're that you get from this writing it's not like what was in glossy music magazines which still existed at that time um and it's not <laughs> like a lot of the other parts of the internet that um there were blogs of course and mp3 blogs but i think that um having the communal passion of so many different people that went through there um, made people just recognize like, these are music people. These aren't like people writing for a general audience. They're writing for us. And mm -hmm. the humor, the that passion, um, I think just the amount of knowledge people have, you know, there's an era of pitchfork review, I will say internally on the site that we don't, we, well, I don't work there anymore, but you don't <laughs> yeah. link to because you're like, mm. who knows what, what it's going to say, because there are definitely ones that say racist, sexist, not good things. Right. So there is that, I would say, I think for the last like 15 years, like 2010 is kind of when we start sometimes linking and being like, this, <laughs> this can be good again. Right. I think there's still that humor um, there's still that passion, I think, a and, a, and certainly a lot of insight and history. I think the site professionalized a lot yeah. and maybe there's less of that like unhinged thing that people like, but there's still a lot of really great writers who got to write in the way that they wanted to write, um, in the review section. And I guess I wanted to just say too, like, this is a complicating factor of it. Like, my best friend is the reviews director. He still works there. Like some of these people were not laid off and they have basically mm -hmm. decided like they think this thing can run without the group of people that make it run. And I feel greatly for the people left there. It's like, there will still be album reviews. I don't think they're going to be bad. I think they're going to be the same, but the entire mechanism behind it right. is, is part of what you really lose, you know? Uh, if I can get a little romantic about Pitchfork reviews, you know, like I, it's some, it's, it's, it is a North Star that I look to. It's not, 
Um, and it's rarely the score. It's never really about the score for me. Um, it's about anticipating the way that a Pitchfork reviewer is going to hear an album. Jill, your review of, for- of Folklore, uh, Taylor Swift's album, like was changed the way that I listened to that record, the same way as your review of like Sweetener by Ariana Grande. Like There is something about the relationship of the reviewer to the music that is not at all about the number that is assigned to it, but it's just about... It's it, these are reviews that teach you how to listen to music, if you will, because they teach you different access points to to actually understanding or having um, a relationship with that music. Rolly, I, I mentioned you, that you cut your teeth at Pitchfork doing indie rap album reviews in the early 2000s. How did you feel about the way that indie rap was being covered by Pitchfork back then, would you say? Oh, it, it wasn't being covered. OK, <laughs> <laughs> go off. Go yeah. Ahead. So, well, yeah, let me talk my stuff here. Yes. Um, this was back in 2003 around when you wouldn't want to link back to a review uh, <laughs> yes. today. Um, but yeah, back then I uh, cold called Pitchfork. I was 17 years old, rap nerd from Canada. Yeah. And I really wanted to fill a blind spot that I thought I saw with underground rap and they gave me a chance, you know, and that's, that's the part of what I really love about Pitchfork. This mm-hmm. idea of like the kind of wild, passionate writing about this weird music that isn't on the radio. Right. The spirit of like Lester Bangs, you know, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, I loved it. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture and entertainment and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if folks are just joining us, by the way, on Commotion, we are talking about all things Pitchfork with former Stafford Jill Mapes. Uh, we've also got Commotion regular Lo- Roly Pemberton, a.k.a. Cadence Weapon, and Nico Stratus is here as well. Uh, let me, let, Nico, I think it's fair to say we're, Jill is sort of talking about this era of Pitchfork that you don't link to that's got like a lot of these criticisms. But it, the, the mid-2000s Pitchfork was also seen as this publication that could make or break your band. Uh, uh, Roly mentioned earlier Arcade Fire, uh, Bonnie Vare. Certainly that review was a transformative moment for Bonnie Vare's career. Uh, Broken Social Scene. All bands that would, you know, would, would say they owe a lot of their success, their initial success, are getting noticed to Pitchfork. But also with that growing reputation and power came a lot of criticisms. What were some of the criticisms that people had of Pitchfork, would you say? I mean, there was that sort of the, the, the like the predominant criticism was the sort of like the weird elitism. Like there's there's things that people like sort of ascribe to music people. And even me as a music person, I've like put it on other people and I know I'm this person too. Yeah. Of like that, like there's like an elitism. There's this sort of like dismissiveness. There's this there's a general tone A and also sort of like the the lens in was always sort of the same vantage point, right? It was like says how white dudes yeah. that are like fresh out of high school that don't have a lot of lived experience in the world that are all sort of coming from this very cynical place because you know it's easier to be cynical in the world if you're coming from that place too right and like sure. so you sort of always had this idea and this was sort of the predominant way you would talk about pitchfork especially in the early 2000s you know like when i was like 
it ages me a little bit, but like I was in my twenties in the early two thousands. And like, you know, we would talk about these things as this sort of like surface level read of like, it is dismissive guys writing dismissively about music, unless it's some band you've never heard of before. And then it's a 10, you right. know, there was like, remember there was like the onion thing where it was like, pitchfork gives all of music a 6.8 or something like that. Like, yes. it was like, that was framed it, in the old pitchfork office in Chicago in the bathroom next to the incredible. toilet. Yeah. And it was like, this is the way you viewed it. Right. Right? And this is sort of like some people never kind of shook that, right? They always just sort of saw it as this one thing, even though it changed a lot over the years. Um, what, what's interesting to me is that, Jill, you sort of mentioned that there's been the shift. Um, can you just talk real quick about like some of the names involved, some of the people who've covered, uh, who've said, you know what, Pitchfork does have some of these problems. Let's push it in a different direction. What names come to mind for you? you, you you'd been there for eight years or so. Well, I would say that a lot of the people that I would name like preceded me because I think that like this work is so slow and behind the scenes that it's like certainly Jessica Hopper who edited the pitch before I did and ran a lot of like audacious things like truly I think was challenging the culture from inside like calling from inside the house having these fights with these guys and making them be like this is a confrontational force that is saying no not yeah. like let's do it incremental so yeah. there for sure um, my boss in the last five years, Pooja Patel, is so committed to covering all types of music, like the site covering all types of music as we would anything else. And at yeah. times that mission is like, you're like, this is so hard. Like, this is very difficult to be like on the ground in in deep everywhere, but it is completely worth doing. Mm -hmm. um, the person who hired me, Mark Richardson, uh, incredible edit editor-in-chief of the site for a long time, amazing writer and critic. He was somebody that um, I think was on the lookout, especially for women writers in the early 2010s. And like, you know, people like Lindsay's old lads and Jen Pelly yeah. and Carrie Batten. And I think of like the women who are kind of the the generation just before me that everything we did, we felt that we were like building off of. Um, yeah. And certainly Amy Phillips, who got I could not believe that she got let go last week. She's been there since for 18 years like a whole ass grown child could have emerged <laughs> from her tenure um and she created so many systems and things that the site i think couldn't run without um so i but uh, yeah as far as editors that is kind of like to me um a small small sliver of people i think like my colleague ryan domble he's always been sure. down to push it Jeremy Larson, who is still there, cares deeply about the diversity of the section, musically and writers. There's a lot of really good people that did what they did to help it. And, you know, it's a continuum. Jill, I want to thank you for those names. I think it's important that they get their flowers. I also want to come back to the present for a moment, because right now we are in this era where an algorithm can look at an artist and the songs that you listen to and tell you other artists and albums to check out. Nico, there's been debates for a while now online about whether the streaming algorithm has kind of replaced the need for the album review. Nico, what, what's your take on this? I mean... No. Okay. <laughs> short answer, no. Short, short I love answer, a short no. answer. Give me the long yeah, answer. No. Hang up the call. No, I feel like, you know, the thing with an algorithm is like an algorithm can't challenge you, right? It's only going to reinforce what you already know. This is how we end up with Noah Kahan because it's just like, oh, do you like pop music? <laughs> Here's, go the, in, here's, the, go here's the here's the here's the untoasted bread of pop music. You know, put some butter on it, it's fine. You know, but like 
uh, the, the thing about, like I say, like Pitchfork or who, whenever, you know, like when I was growing up reading magazines that I stole from the bookstore, sorry, Max Fire, we don't white horse, I stole Spin Magazine. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're reading it to be challenged, to be introduced to something, right? Like I don't hmm. want to always just be reinforced by what I know I already like. I want to be given sort of an inroad into something new and especially, you know, good critics. This is the role we've been having a lot of conversations about, like the role of a critic. And part of it is like people are coming from a different place and they're maybe giving you new language to understand understand stuff you maybe didn't get or you mm. were into or you didn't know was out there and like those things are important and an algorithm cannot do that stuff right an algorithm can't give you context all an algorithm is going to do is say i know what you like here's more of what you like and that's not good enough and if we lose all that it's really going to be hard for artists as well and for readers and for like a whole system breaks down if we start to lose all these things i think we're, we're due for a whole conversation about like artists that feel like they're designed for the algorithm specifically you know like you mentioned like Noah Kahan certainly to me and I like I, I don't even mind a lot of his music but like Post Malone is kind of like the arrival point of many streams of algorithms you know like if you like this kind of music it'll lead you to Post Malone if you like this other kind of music you'll arrive at the same kind of you know same kind of touch point which is exactly you know the 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 bad thing about trusting algorithms with this is because it leads you down a singular direction. Uh, Jill, when yeah. you think about this, you know, what do you think we lose when we deprioritize album reviews and music criticism in general and kind of go, you know what? Algorithms have got this. Well, I think it's funny that the whole prevailing logic is like these things that were a consumer guide starting from like when they were created. Obviously, Robert Criscow really leans into that by naming his site and column consumer guide um it's not a consumer guide anymore people can go and listen to that music what they need is context and like we've been talking about like new ears and eyes through which to understand this music mm -hmm. um and you just need i think it's completely fine to to read criticism that you don't agree with because i think that it is good to challenge yourself to not get into one sort of group think about what music is good and what music is bad mm -hmm. so uh, there's uh, there's a lot of things that i just feel like the streamers can't even touch one of them is that they don't even like i don't know why everything i listen to leads back to like julian baker or something like <laughs> it's just like the recommendation of of music is based on like how famous a person is or like how contemporary they are it's not even based on sonic qualities it's completely like social aspects and i think that's a really terrible way to engage with sound i have personally. I, I have no particular complaints about more people listening to julian baker that's not a real yeah, you know no. that's, yeah. but you're right i'm like, cool the, with julian baker the, the idea that all of this leads down one sort of river like that's that's sort of the troubling aspect of this really the the, the counter argument of that is that you know jill just raised robert or just raised robert Criscow, but like he was writing at a time when albums were $20. And if you're 15 years old and you're like, bro, I can't spend it on all these albums. I got to choose one. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to defer to what the critic is telling me to do. But now I can go and download all of them and then like, you know, delete an album that I don't like off my phone. Um, so where does the, how, how do you think the, the role of the album review has changed? You know, I always find that argument uh, really interesting because it presupposes that uh, one would only read an album review to find out what to buy or what to listen to. Mm. But, you know, an album review uh, is an art form in and of itself. And I, I think we need to 
reorient our thinking around what the purpose of a site like pitchfork is mm. like it, it, it I, I really don't i don't need anyone to tell me what uh how to find music you know personally yeah. i read this music criticism just to add depth and color and context to everything i i already listen to or or i i'm already interested in uh, so I, I don't think, you know, that's the other thing too, with the online and just the way social media is, um, you have a lot of people who are not able to give that level of context to the music mm-hmm. who weren't there when it initially happened. So they're, they've got this kind of what I would say, like an ahistorical view of certain music scenes. That's something I've noticed a lot on TikTok. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're, you know, you're not going to get that, um, from somebody who actually knows the context. The entire media industry seems to be in a bit of disarray. Layoffs, um, cuts everywhere we're looking at. That said, we're also seeing this uptick in grassroots startups and return to stuff like newsletters, all fueled by journalists who are still passionate about covering the thing they want to cover. So just to close, I want to get each of you to maybe an honest prediction about where this is going to go, where music journalism, music criticism might go in the coming years. Nico, maybe you go first. Yeah, um, you know, we are definitely in this place of like, you know, people that can just sort of start up, they can start up a newsletter, they can do whatever. We're seeing a lot of like worker owned outlets pop up, like the defector model has really sort of people are always being like, oh, we should do defector for X, like defector is becoming a brand. Defector name. media has become uh, sort of like this new yeah, template like of how to do this. Yeah, 404 aftermath places like that. And sure. like, you know, the one hard thing with that is like they sort of bank on recognizable names. So it's harder for unheard, smaller, maybe voices from marginalized groups, whatever, to find a voice. Yeah. That being said you know pitchfork started by two guys who just were at fresh out of high school and wanted to do music criticism so like craig jenkins sort of said this in his sort of write-up about it of like this is not the end this is just the moment we're in and hopefully we will sort of come out of this gully we're stuck in on the other side but i think it's going to be hard for the next couple years especially Mm -hmm. for like unknown smaller fresh new artists to sort of break through because now we're all sort of relying on ourselves to get it done uh roly 30 seconds to you yeah, I think we're going to go back kind of to the blog era a little bit with newsletters. You know, I think that yeah. was a really fun time for music writing. I feel like uh, just a lot of passion of people talking about exactly what they care the most about. And yeah. hopefully everybody who's losing their jobs uh, starts something new that's writer owned where they control the means of production. Uh, people forget that the blog era was not a profitable era. It was a, it was an era of passion. It was an era of people wanted to express the deepest things that they felt. And like then the monetization came. Uh, Jill, we got 30 seconds. Last word to you. Uh, I got to agree with Raleigh in that I, there's a lot of talented people uh, without jobs now. And there are conversations happening to figure out what's next. Not necessarily for the whole industry, but just to see if it's workable for a small group of people uh, and what happens. There's like, I've been amazed at um, all the support that has come out and things that are coming up that show me that there is both an audience that wants it. And like, there are avenues beyond the corporate media, which is not working and is not going to work in this space. Well, uh, we got to leave it there, but Nico, Dill, Roly, I really appreciate it. Dill, I really especially appreciate it, given everything that's happening right now. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you all for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Jill Mabes. Free therapy. Thank you. Pleasure. Jill Mabes is a journalist and former editor of Pitchfork. Nico Stratus is a culture critic who writes the newsletter Anxiety Shark. She's in Toronto. Rolly Pemberton is a music critic and rapper known as Cadence Weapon. He's out in Hamilton.
And that is it for the podcast today. Remember, you can listen to any episode of Commotion anytime you like, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, do me a favor. Go find a music journalist that you love and just like thank them for their work. This is really important work and I really wish it would continue to exist around here. My name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. I'm going to be around tomorrow. If you're going to be around, I would love to hang out then. It's a date. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.